Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast. I hope you're having a great summer. Mine has been phenomenal, interesting, wonderful. I've spent 25 days in Texas, and then I've spent about 10 days in Chicago, Michigan, and Wisconsin. I feel like I'm a visitor in my own home, but I love traveling. And in those travels, I've met um, Paul Putz, who's a colleague of mine at Baylor University, but he's uh, assistant Director of the Faith and Sports Institute, where he helps to lead and develop online programming and curriculum, as well as assisting with communications and strategic planning. Paul went to Grace University, where he um, got his bachelor's degree in secondary education and played basketball, and then got his PhD from Baylor, um, and then has, you know, time as a secondary high school teacher I think that's right, Paul. And then also a also in the college classroom. And what I'm super excited for, I follow Paul on Twitter. I've gotten to know him through my through my opportunities to work with and at Baylor. Um, but I'm really excited for like what you've been putting out on Twitter and your first book coming out, hopefully in 2023, about the the history of sports and Christianity in modern American culture. So, Paul, I'm just gonna drive like real quick to your story. Um, and, and then we'll just take it from there. But the question I have for you as you kind of get this, a kid from Nebraska who goes off and plays college basketball and becomes a high school teacher, how did you get interested in this intersection of kind of, you know, faith and American, you know, and, and sports and how it interplays in American culture? Man, we're jumping right in. I love it. So for me, I'm a pastor's kid. That's part of it. And small town Nebraska, like a lot of places in, in America, depends on your community or neighborhood, but there's usually some sport that people pay attention to. They follow, they watch. And so, you know, football is big in Nebraska, um, but the community gets behind all sorts of sports. And so when I was growing up, I'm playing sports. I'm a pastor's kid. I see myself as an athlete. I also see myself as a Christian. These are, you know, two really important forms of identity, ways I see myself. And I, I wouldn't have expressed it like that back then when I'm growing up, but I, but I came to, to see how those were, you know, an, an integral to who I am. I'm also, back then I was part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which is really, really prominent in Nebraska and a lot of parts of the Bible Belt. And that also kind of shaped some of those questions about faith and sports. Now, the other side to that, to actually think through the culture piece that came more as I started to get into teaching. And so, as you said, I spent some time in the high school classroom. I was a social studies teacher for about four years at a public high school in Omaha, Nebraska. And during that time, I had to make the decision every teacher has to make, which is, do I want to get into administration? Am I going to do my master's classes in admin? Am I going to do curriculum instead? Or am I going to go kind of discipline specific, right? There's sort of three paths that you take. And I ended up making the choice to do discipline specific. So I did my master's in history while I was teaching. And, and it was through that process and I always had an inquisitive mind. I saw myself at one time as a sports journalist that I wanted to, to piece together the story of how my life rooted in faith and sports, rooted in the fellowship of Christian athletes, rooted in being a pastor's kid and an athlete. How did, how did my life happen at, at that nexus, really. It's like some, I'm just some random kid in Nebraska, but I'm like thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people in the United States who have been so strongly shaped 
by these communities of faith within sports. And so as I'm teaching social studies classes, I'm taking graduate classes in history, that really sparked my imagination and interest. And when I went to do my PhD in history at Baylor, that became the thing I wanted to explore is really how do I, how do I make sense of my own story? I love it. I love how we get to work out as, as social studies teachers, making sense of our own stories with our students, with our kids, but then even within our own work. And your story about the three paths as a secondary teacher, I was definitely on that journey too. So it, quick question, and I know this could go super long and super wide, but we, we were talking, you know, a couple of weeks ago, about youth sports and about where it's going and where it's headed. But I want to take us back a little bit because I'm wondering, as someone who loves sports too, you know, I look at the foundations of, of youth sports in particular with, um, you, you mentioned FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, and I, I used to lead Fellowship of Christian Athletes at a public school in Illinois. But I look at Little League, I look at, you know, basketball, and it started at YMCA, I look at a lot of the, the foundations of sport in the United States in particular. And even I think if we dig deep into soccer in England, and some of those other places, or football, I should say, in England, um, it, it, it is this place where there was this emphasis on character formation, on community development, on providing kids with more life opportunities it wasn't necessarily about the sport. Could, could you help us understand like maybe how sports in its foundation to a transition, maybe how it's changed over the last hundred years? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty broad question, but that's I, a problem. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could give us a little perspective as we maybe go into some of the other things that you're discovering. Uh, that's a great question. I think to, to, to think about the foundations, especially, it's like how, when, when, you, when you stop to think about it, it can seem kind of strange, right? Like, how is it that it's just normal that within our school system, connected to our, our high schools and junior highs even, sports play such a central role in being the most publicly identifiable wing of that high school or that college for that matter. And if we look at the history of that, um, one of the ways that this happened was it emerged out of, you know, the 19th century. You mentioned England, uh, which is certainly a big part of this. In the United States context, a movement called muscular Christianity was adapted from England and, and really tried to provide a moral foundation for sports. So there was there's sort of two different visions of sports going on. And there's this one vision of sports that says it's simply about, you know, fun and recreation and maybe even causing trouble. So, so the idea of a sporting life being associated with a, a diversion from something useful, that was an image associated with sports in the 19th century. And at schools, in these boarding schools, or as public high schools are emerging, um, a lot of times it was boys would organize games and they'd start to play and they'd be rambunctious and rowdy and they'd have fun. And so, you know, it kind of starts at this crowd level of kids are playing these games and they're causing problems. And so these other leaders associated with muscular Christianity say, okay, well, what if we channeled this clear instinct for play and games and wanting to do something active? What if we channel that into something that has value? What if we can organize and structure it so that we can 
we can uh, gear it towards particular character traits and values. And so it's sort of out of that sense, that desire to channel the things that are already happening in a positive direction that you start to see organized sports develop and schools begin to embrace it as a central part of, of the life of the school. Um, and so there's this process, you know, there's different views on what are the boundaries that you draw around the sports that you're playing. Um, you know, how can we make sure that there are, you know, school is, is providing educational value through athletics. There's questions about at the college level amateurism. And if you get money involved in the sport, do you start to lose this moral formation and educational uh, aspect of it? But in general, it just becomes sort of common sense that if we train coaches and, and teachers and athletic directors well, and if we have them regulate and organize the games, then the kids who play the games are going to learn and develop traits that will make them better citizens, better community members. They'll learn moral values. There's sort of this Christian language tied to it, but not in a dogmatic way. It's more of a sort of American citizen type of way that's infused with this religious ethos. And it becomes so popular, that way of seeing sports, that by the early 1900s, you have Theodore Roosevelt, the U.S. president, who is strongly advocating for playing sports and games as a way to form virtuous citizens. I mean, you have the invention of sports because of this vision of, of character building. Um, basketball is invented in 1891 by James Naismith, who is a muscular Christian, and he's, he's actually at a Christian college, and he's given an assignment by his professor in a class that's a psychology of coaching class. And the assignment uh, from Luther Golick was to design a game. Like if you, if you were to invent a game, what game would you invent and why? And the idea was, how would you intentionally design something to promote the values you want to promote? And so Naismith is thinking through and wrestling with this, but then he gets another challenge. And the challenge is there's this gym class and he's the teacher of it. And all the this kids there, the, or actually they're young men, are being rowdy and they don't like any of the games or exercises being played. And so Naismith is given the task of taking his classroom seminar activity and applying it to this rowdy group of young men. And it's out of those visions that basketball is created very intentionally by Naismith to promote specific values. So I think with, with the invention of basketball, you see all those things coming together of an impulse to play and a desire to channel that towards these character building ends. And in a way that's just become common sense, but maybe in a way that we've become less intentional about safeguarding over time because it, it just became kind of the, like the air that we breathe where it's a platitude that we trot out instead of something we're actually trying to produce. Well, and one of the things that I've watched over, I think probably my childhood and then into my college years, I think my college years were a pivotal transition from, you know, I played basketball, baseball, you know, soccer, you know, um, never played football, but also, you know, some of the individual sports, but very much included everything that I played was community driven. But then when I got out of college and started coaching, it was the beginning of the club sport boom. And, and so, like, I'm really interested in, you and I spent some time talking about this, this transition, even in our own thinking, how do we need to think differently, you know, and so we're not the old men looking back at glory days or bemoaning what we've lost or whatever, but we look at some of the really good things, you know, and the high levels of competitions and the really cool opportunities that kids get and opportunities, but then also kind of not lose sense of, 
or what I see happening really over the last 20 years is really the loss of a focus on character, a focus in on community. And then, and then also I do believe there is a different focus in on well-being um, for production rather than well-being for healthy living. How do we think about this transition from the past, you know, in this time period as we move into the future and think about like our role as people who are leaders in schools and in communities? It's a really tough one to balance, right? Because I do think one of the reasons that sports become so ingrained in American life is because it is a community-based public emphasis. So the idea is to make games widely available and hopefully even free um, or at least affordable to make them accessible so that as many people can play them as possible. And so, um, you know, er early on, even with these early youth baseball leagues, you mentioned Little League or American Legion actually comes before Little League. So there's these organizations that are formed really because there's a belief in the educational and moral value of sports and the desire to make that widely available. It, It happens from you know, just groups of community members and uh, businessmen. And, and at, at the time, there aren't too many business women, but, but they get involved in it as well as they get more career opportunities. And so it is a, it's, a, it's a shared community investment in the public good, the common good of sports. And I think that that vision for sports, it's never pure, like you said. There are always these financial motivations behind it. There's uh, commercialization is wrapped up in it very early on where you're charging admissions to games and someone's getting some money from it, from the play of these, you know, 14, 15, 16 year old kids. So that's certainly been an element, but in general, there is a vision to, to encourage play and sports and games for the good of the community. I think it's after the 1960s into the 1970s, 1980s, uh, 1990s, when we start to see, you know, this turn to, to privatized, uh, youth sports leagues. And, 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 you know, some of this is driven by the, the, the heightened emphasis on sports in some cases. Um, up until the 1970s, this is, I mean, if you think about it, it's hard to imagine this even, but uh, televised sports, right, really becomes a dominant way of engaging in sports, not until the late 1960s, 1970s, right? Until that time, Um, The way that most people would have even encountered sports are by going and watching the games live. The only way you could participate was to go watch the team that you cheer on, watch the high school team, watch the college team, or if you're lucky enough to have a pro team or a minor league team. And so up until the 1960s, that's the way that people are participating in sports. Now, they might listen on the radio, but that, too, is a regional network. And television totally changes this. After the 1960s, 70s and 80s, there's this there's this push to the, the best, the elite, where all the money and resources suddenly are poured into uh, you know, the, the professional leagues and the high-level college leagues. And when people start to engage in sports, more often it's as this spectator watching it on television instead of as a community member going and watching someone that they know participate. And that also changes the incentives and the, the stakes that are involved, the money that's involved. I mean, in the 1960s, you had a pro athlete who had a job in the offseason as an insurance agent because they needed to make ends meet. By the 1970s, television money means that the salaries are booming. You have the celebrity status. You have wealth. 
And I think as a result, people at the lower levels, it sort of filters down into that. They're saying, hey, look at all the wealth and money you can get if you become a pro athlete. Let's, I want my kid to, to turn into that. Or if you're, you're, you might see a business opportunity, I can train the best athletes, catch them early, I'll train them up and they can become a celebrity athlete. And, and so I, th- I, really, I really think it's that influx of television money that restructures and changes how we relate to sports and then also the incentive structure that filters on down to, the, to youth sports leagues, which has been a process that's been going on for decades, but we're really seeing the fruits of it, especially I think in the last couple of decades. So, you know, you work, you know, and you, you touch on a lot of different things and you work with, you know, I work with you at Baylor University and, you know, we're at a place where sports is very much a part of the life, right? You talk about that air you breathe. It's a part of the life of the school. Um, how do you see this? You know, if, if you were to, you know, give a recommendation, you, you get to watch it play out, you get to study it, you get to work on it, because then there was also a really interesting tweet that you, you put out there um, in response to Stan Van Gundy, you know, in, in his, his sense of saying, hey, when, when we do something good, we celebrate, you know, and we, we point to Jesus and we point to heaven or whatever, and we give credit. And then when we do poorly, you know, we don't, right? But then you corrected them on some of that stuff and then the role of our faith in success and failure. Like what would be, you know, if you think about those high school days and school days, what would be some of your thoughts or recommendations as we move into a different era on how sports might play itself out from a faith perspective, but then how the faith can actually integrate into that sport and then we can maybe, maybe live those authentic, true and, 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 and purposeful lives. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does make sense. And I would start by actually tying it with what we've just discussed. If, if we think that there are some unhealthy trends in youth sports, and especially with access opportunity and the purpose, then I think the first way we can say, how do we integrate our faith in sports? Let's think about the structure. Let's actually think about the opportunities people have. Let's think about the leagues we have. And um, so being involved, so you can be a positive example, you can support the ref instead of yelling at them so that you can coach your kids and you might not be the best coach, but you can at least encourage them to continue playing. So being involved is one, but think about the structure. What if, what if Christians said, hey, here's something broken or wrong with our youth sports system. Let's band together to do something in our local community to try to strengthen it or to fix that problem. Not that it's going to be perfect because it never was, but we can at least say, let's, let's, if, if sports are good, and I think they are, then let's make that widely available to as many people as possible to experience what is legitimately beautiful and good about sports. And I think when we talk about the integration piece, then what follows from that is one of the beautiful things about sports are how it encompasses mind, body, soul, spirit. Like it encompasses all of who we are in a unique way. There are not many areas of life where we're using our bodies, right? And in such a, such an an obvious and intense way, but at the same time, our minds are fully engaged. And there's a reason that we sort of talk about sports as this religious experience is because when you're an athlete, or even when you're a fan, there's this almost a state of it's not transcendence, but it feels like something different, something unique, something powerful. And I think part of that is because we are, we become so engaged in it in a holistic way. That is not just about, it's not just about physical, but it's mental, it's spiritual as well. 
So uh, for, for Christian athletes, for Christian coaches, or maybe people from other traditions, but for me coming from a Christian perspective, I'm thinking through, okay, how do we in, help athletes and coaches intentionally uh, live out their faith in that area? Not, not set it aside, not say, okay, I'm on the field now, God isn't present here, but actually to say, whatever is good about sports, we receive as a gift from God. And, and God is present on the field or the court while I'm playing. And so to acknowledge him, I think, is a, is a natural way that Christians can witness to their, you know, their sense of place in the world, their thankfulness to a God who created them, who endowed them with their abilities and skills. You know, with, with, with Stan Van Gundy's question, I think it's, he, he didn't really ask it in good faith. I think his point was to sort of say, you know, look at these hypocritical Christians, um, you know, they link God with their success, but they don't blame God for their failure. I, I, I would hope that a Christian athlete, if they hit a home run and they're thanking God for it, the spontaneous celebration, that's great. Hopefully after a strikeout, they're also sort of wrestling with that too and, and saying, hey, I'm disappointed right now. Your expressions are going to be disappointment because you're a human being, but you can turn those disappointments to God as well. You can actually, uh, hopefully internally, you're processing that in line with the truths you know about God and who you are. You're saying this strikeout or this failure doesn't mean God loves me less, doesn't mean that I'm less valuable, but but you can still experience the disappointment in that because that is the beauty and power of sports is to experience these emotions that happen because our minds and bodies are fully engaged. So I think the, the first thing with, with uh, or the most important thing with integrating um, is to come with our whole selves. We don't leave our religious selves aside, but they're a part of who we are. And then there isn't a one-step approach to that. Some people might feel great pointing to the heavens after a you know, home run. And, and some people don't, and that's okay. You don't have to perform your Christianity for, for an audience, but it can be a personal thing and yet a personal thing that plays out in public, which I think is what Christians are called to do. Um, and then also that just added to reiterate again, and don't forget the structural piece to it as well, because if our faith is to have meaning in the world, it's not just through a sort of the, the hitting the home run, but it's actually through what happens off the field. Sports are just one part of life. And so we need to be engaged in all of what happens with sports, not just that small part of it that happens when we hit the home run. That's really interesting. And you mentioned, so, you mentioned, you know, there's so many different things that I'm thinking right now. So these are plenty of conversations to come. Um, you, you mentioned something about coaches, you know, and, and then how we coach and, and the way we coach. Is there a coach that you've come across in your studies and in your research and, and different things that you're like, you know what, this is an interesting person that people should like look to as, as someone to take inspiration from on how to best do this? Most recently, I, and this is not, I'm not giving you like from my, my history, I'm finding this unique diamond in the rough, but most recently, Joe Ehrman is a really helpful model. I think he's written the book Inside Out Coaching and has a whole program and initiative designed around um, what he calls Inside Out Coaching. Ehrman was a professional football player. Um, he became a Christian going to a team Bible study with the Baltimore Colts. And uh, he was a pastor for a while. Meanwhile, he's coaching this football team in Baltimore. Um, and his, his story became well known because there was a book written in 2004 about it. And so Ehrman, he's a pastor, he was a coach, and, and he developed a way of coaching that focuses on holistic development and trying to help coaches identify their own weaknesses, 
so that they can lead with their strengths and 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 love at, at the end of the day love the kids that they're they're coaching so uh, ermine with the inside out coaching i think is really helpful in terms of more of like historical examples i think of i mean one of my favorites is john mcclendon who was um pioneering black basketball coach who actually learned the game of basketball under james naismith so he he goes to the university of kansas and james naismith is there at the time naismith isn't coaching at kansas he's just a professor and McClendon wants to play basketball, but he can't at Kansas because at the time they don't allow black players to play basketball. And so McClendon instead goes to Naismith and Naismith takes McClendon under his wing, um, mentors McClendon and helps him develop these principles, essentially, that McClendon takes with him. And McClendon uses that at several uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges, to develop winning and successful basketball programs, but also programs that focus on on the player. I mean, in the 1950s, I was just reading an article that he wrote back then about coaching, but in the 1950s, he's writing in ways that we talk about now. He's ahead of his time. He's talking about how we care for players, how you get player buy-in if you encourage them, if you have a positive model, having clear expectations, having you know some a goal that they can shoot for, having them pursue excellence and not winning as the primary goal. I mean, McLennan is saying all this stuff in the 1950s, and it's things I think now, 70 years later, we're still saying, hey, this is what we should be about. So McLennan would be one who I think is a great model to look to historically. And uh, more recently, I think Joe Ehrman is a good one. But there's, there's also, I've come to find, lots of people in local communities. Sometimes it's not the big name coach. Right. But it's, it's someone who's just been invested. They're present more than anything being present and caring about the, the the players as people first and foremost when you can find those individuals i think that's those are the type of people you want to follow so let me ask you a question on the player side because you posted this yesterday on twitter and i thought this was interesting is you know there's a lot of this talk especially around the book jesus and john wayne um, of new perspectives or new ways of looking at and you mentioned muscular christianity earlier um, and then you, you kind of keyed in on, hey, who's somebody out there that might give us a better perspective of living this life out faithfully, well, you know, in a multidimensional way. And you you honed in on Jackie Robinson as as a as an athlete to look at that said, hey, this might be a better model than what we were given. Um, why Jackie Robinson? I think you hit on it, right? I think it's because he never saw sports as the end of life. You know, I, I think when, when we recognize sports as a good thing, we're, in, we're, in, we're, we're right on the right track. When we make it an ultimate thing, that's where we get in danger. And so Jackie Robinson, the title of his autobiography is I Never Had It Made. And he titled it that because the message he wanted to convey was this. And he, he published it in 1972. So this is, you know, after his baseball career is done. But he wanted to make it clear that his success in sports did not mean that, that, that we've achieved all that we need to in American society. He said, until all poor people have an equal opportunity for success, until we've addressed problems of, of poverty and racism and inequality, and those are the things Jackie Robinson said needed to happen before he could say, I've had it made. 
And so, you know, in his book, if you, if you read his autobiography, he writes about the success he's had, the, the, the thankfulness he has to the people who helped him achieve success. But he said, as one person who's a star athlete, I don't want to come up here and be presented as a model of, of something that doesn't actually exist on the ground level of society. And so to the extent that Jackie Robinson connected sports with what's going on in communities, what's going on with people outside of sports, I think, I think he's, he's, he's you know, exactly what we need to think about. But then along with that, just his personal character. I mean, it's as a historian, when I research people, you often find, like you would with anyone, like you would with me, if you looked into my life, examples of, of things that make you see their flaws, see their um, failures, see hypocrisy, see times people haven't practiced what they preach. They haven't lived up to kind of the ideals that they profess. And, and Jackie Robinson had some of those moments, but they were really few and far between. And he's he's one of those rare people who the more that you study him, the greater admiration you have for him, whether it's the fact that he was able to navigate just the burden and the pressure he faced as a baseball player to be the first uh, black baseball player to reintegrate the majors after 60 years, the entire country is watching you. And not only does he excel on the baseball field, right, for, for a couple of years, but he's he, he, he represents and embodies himself in, in this, this, with this fighting sensibility, this determination uh, that's remarkable. Um, I think of Jackie Robinson, too, and the, the love he had for his family with his wife, Rachel. I think he's a model of a, of a, a, a marriage that's also a friendship. Um, he, he, he supported her and her career as she started to figure out, hey, there's, I don't just want to be Jackie Robinson's wife, but I actually you know, feel, feel a calling to, to my own development. And Jackie Robinson supports her in that. Um, he was also a, a fiercely independent thinker. So in the 1960s, as there's these debates about the civil rights movement and what approach to take, Jackie Robinson is, is you know, part of the civil rights movement, part of the marches. But in his autobiography, he has a section on Malcolm X and he has a section on Martin Luther King Jr. And with both of those people, he finds things he agrees with, things he disagrees with. So he was always his own man who would listen and learn, but ultimately have an independent uh, sense of thought, not getting into tribalism, but really trying to articulate what he thinks and believes in light of his own experiences and convictions. And so you combine all of that. And I think that's, that's the, the, the type of person that we'd want to put forward to as, as a model, independent thinker, committed to family, um, committed to their craft, someone who's determined and driven, but someone who also doesn't make sports the, the be all end all of life, instead sees sports as one important part of, of a bigger vision of life that's rooted in community. Oh, I appreciate that. That's, it's interesting. And it's a, it's a great biography. I mean, to me, anybody who loves sports, it's a must read. Absolutely. Um, and American, American history. It's right. all about American history and his place in American history. And, and uh, I mean, the faith piece is important to him as well. So you'll, Robinson is, is, is a Christian who's, whose life is changed by a pastor named Carl Downs. So, you know, it connects with that piece to it as well. All right. Two, two non-serious questions, right? As we kind of wrap up our time together. What's a sport, you know, if we look at it, that is maybe an Olympic sport or just an unusual sport or sport that's out there, I'll go first, that you would love to see played more in like let's say high school or even lower levels in the school setting i love i love team handball 
I, if I had my opportunity to, to, to lead another school again someday, we're starting a team handball team. Like I'm all in, I love it. I love, and there's ways that I could say why, but I'm not interested in that. What, what's a sport that you say, hey, you know what? This is a really phenomenal sport that people should play more of or think about, you know, outside of the normative kind of regular sports that we play in the United States. So look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put myself on blast here and say, I'm, I'm one of those like old man yelling at clouds when it comes to sports. I'm like baseball, football, basketball. That's what I want us to be about. I don't want new sports. I want everyone to be doing the traditional American Trinity. And I mean, track and field in there too. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of like, I know that I shouldn't. I know I need to make space for, for these newer expressions of sports and all of that. But for me, and as part of my own background, like those are the three that's tough for me to get away from baseball, softball, right? And all of that. Now, I'd also add to that, that, that trinity of volleyball growing up in Nebraska. Um, it, volleyball is huge there. And, and, and so I'm still a big fan of the Nebraska women's volleyball team. I'd like to see more, uh, you know, more, maybe more guys playing volleyball. I think that'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen, so this isn't just a school sport necessarily. So it's slightly different than your question, but pickleball seems to me like one of those unique sports that is, is, uh, interest people of all sorts of ages. It kind of bridges this generational gap. And so I'm interested in pickleball, maybe maybe as a way to introduce it to people in, in high school, but maybe it's not like a competitive, the competitive model we have with other sports, but instead sort of as a lifelong sport. Like if we think about the purpose of sport, it doesn't always have to be high stakes competition, but a sport like pickleball, I think, allows you to find meaning and connection and some competition. And you can do it for decades. My dad is a retired pastor slash UPS driver with a bad back. And he's out there playing pickleball in the Nebraska, you know, retired people's games or whatever they call it. So um, I, I'd like to see, to see pickleball grow more as well. I love it. I love it. We, when I was a school principal, we had pickleball and it was super fun. It's super competitive. And the champion of the pickleball intramural league was not a normative kind of one of your traditional athletes. And I love the fact that you're still a traditionalist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that fact. And, and you're I, my personal favorite sport to, to watch and to be a part of as a high school principal was always, always volleyball. Great sport. Oh, so much fun, but positive culture. I've never been in a place where the positivity was so high and the now, energy was so high in a positive way. And that's what I loved. No, about, look, I- I was a line judge in volleyball for a while. And I can tell you, it's not always positive. <laughs> I, uh, uh, maybe it was my line judging that brought out the negative side, but maybe no, it I, was, maybe it was the, the Nebraska competitive nature. <laughs> Cause I know the stakes are quite high in Nebraska. Oh, yeah. uh, that's great. Hey, so second non-serious question. I think always digs deep. Um, you love basketball. I know we, we kind of track in the finals this year and different things. Um, early predict prediction on the on the nba finals for next year gotta run with my celtics i'm a boston celtics fan when you grow up in nebraska you are a free agent with whatever pro teams you want you would talk about televised sports sort of taking over that's a great example of it so uh boston celtics for me that's my team and they're actually good so i'm gonna run with them we'll see who they they got malcolm brogdon who i like because he is a history major uh in college. And so he, he, he's a, I'm a big fan of him. So we're going with the Celtics there uh, out in the West. 
you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I did. I love the nuggets, love Jokic and his game. Um, Luke is coming up, but then, you know, the, maybe I'm just going to go with the Warriors. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say it. Let's stick with the Warriors and let's say that they run it back one more time. They still got Steph draining threes. So let's go Warrior Celtics rematch, but the Celtics take it this time. I love it. We're going to come back to this one and see what happens. So Paul, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it.